Before I get to the reading of the text this evening, I need to ask a question of you and see how many of you were present this morning during the 9.30 worship service. Can I see your hands? A lot of most of you. All right, the reason I ask that question is this, is that I forgot to mention at that service that on Easter Sunday next week, we'll be having three services instead of two, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11, no Sunday school, and no evening service next Sunday night. Is that right, Burke? Okay. So, since I neglected to mention the three services on Sunday, please tell your friends that you see uh, about that and try to encourage some of them at least to come to the 8 o'clock service <laughs> so that we'll have enough room for everyone. We're going to continue with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are in now chapter 6, and I'm going to read again verse 4 and read through verse 14. That's Romans 6, verses 4 through 14. No, verses 4 through 11. I'd be foolish to go any further than that. So, uh, I'd like to ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For He who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Again, Father, as we continue to study this weightiest of all of Paul's epistles, We beg for your help, for these things, in many cases, are deeper than that which we can penetrate with the weakness of our own minds. So please condescend this evening to help us in our frailty, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Before I direct your attention to the text, there is one other thing I need to tell you. This past week... I was in Mississippi at a a pastor's conference held by First Church of Jackson, 
There were about 300 ministers there, and we were talking about the dynamics of worship and what is involved in the pastoral ministry. And one of the speakers at that conference talked about the importance of expository preaching where you preach through books continuously as we do here so that where we pick up this week is right where we left off last week and there is uh, what is called the Lectio Continua, which is the continuous reading of the text. And the goal, of course, in the course of a man's ministry is to be able to preach through the whole Bible. I start a little late at this, and uh, <clears throat> unless the Lord tarries and gives me another three score and ten by reason of strength, I don't think I'm going to make it preaching through the whole of Scripture. But he gave, this man gave us a practical idea, and he told us what he does in his church, that if he's preaching through a New Testament book like we are now, going through the Gospel of Mark in the morning services, uh, what he does is every Sabbath morning, if he's preaching through the New Testament, he reads continually through an Old Testament book, but without comment. It is just the public reading of the Scriptures. It takes three or four minutes every Sunday morning to read through a book, and by the time he's finished preaching on the New Testament book, he's usually finished reading through that Old Testament book so that the people then are exposed to that whole text. And I really was uh, excited about that, and uh, Burke and I talked about it. I said, we're, we're going to start doing that. And so uh, after Easter, God willing, we're going to add an Old Testament reading uh, to our morning worship service, and what I'd like to do is read through the book of Exodus so that we might become familiar with that great event of the Exodus and the giving of the law and so on that so enriches our understanding of the New Testament. So that's just a little heads up to let you know something new that we're going to be doing here. You can't get too much of the Word of God, folks. I'm going to say that again. You can't get too much of the Word of God, folks. Amen. All right. Now, now we're cooking. Now, the reason I've been giving all these announcements and everything is to try to delay as long as I can filibuster before attacking uh, this portion of chapter 6 that we have in Paul's letter to the Romans. I, I really believe, you know, many people think that the toughest chapter to interpret in Romans is chapter 11. I'll face that obstacle when we get to it. But for me, the hardest portion of this whole epistle is this section of chapter 6. I don't know how many times I've lectured on Romans, taught on this book, and every time I get here, I just, I really want to get on the horse and race to the end of it so I can turn my attention to the next chapter because this is hard. And the reason it's hard is because of the language that Paul uses here. It's really hard to discern what he means sometimes, whether he's speaking physically or figuratively, mystically. And, uh, and so I sometimes find myself changing views in the middle of uh, my study of it, but this is one of the advantages of doing expository preaching. You have to deal with what comes next, and this is what comes next, and there's no way I can find to run a detour around it. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me as we look at this difficult 
part. Chapter 6 began, as we saw last week, with the rhetorical question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And we looked at that and saw that Paul answered that question not only with denial but with abhorrence, saying, God forbid. And what Paul's great concern here in this chapter is that those who have been justified have been justified unto holiness. We've not been justified by our holiness or through our holiness, but we are justified unto it for the purpose that we might grow into conformity to the image of Christ. So that we who are not justified by our sanctification are justified in order that we may progress in our sanctification. And we looked at the threat of antinomianism last week and saw that conclusion already in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And I mentioned in our study last week that our baptism symbolizes, among other things, our union with Jesus, our participation with Him in His death and His resurrection. Now, before I go on here, I think what is absolutely essential, if we're going to make any sense of what Paul is teaching here in the sixth chapter of this epistle, is to just take for a moment to look at, again, at how strongly Paul articulates the idea of our mystical union with Christ. That by the Holy Spirit, every person who believes in Christ is then joined to Christ spiritually. So that if I am a believer, I am now in Christ, and Christ is in me. And the invisible church is made up of all of those who are in Christ Jesus, all who participate in this mystical union between us and Christ. Well, here in the text, Paul takes this idea of our mystical union a little further, that he tells us that in a spiritual sense, not only are our sins imputed to Christ in His death on the cross, and the benefits of His resurrection transferred to us, and the benefits of His righteousness imputed to us by legal transaction. But there, it goes beyond that. It goes to this business of our real spiritual union with our Savior. In a spiritual sense, we died with Him on Calvary. Because when He went to the cross, He went not for Himself, but for His sheep. And He did a work that we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. But it was our sin that He was carrying in His death. And so when He died, He didn't simply die for us, but we, in the, by virtue of this spiritual union, died with Him. Therefore, Paul says, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also by, walk in the newness of life. 
because in a very real sense, we who are in Christ share in the power of His resurrection, not merely after we die and go to heaven, but right now we share in the power of His resurrection because everyone who is justified, everyone who believes savingly in Jesus Christ is someone who has been raised already from spiritual death. Now, we looked earlier at our understanding of original sin that has passed to us from Adam, and when we described our condition of original sin, we used the biblical metaphors of death and slavery, that by nature we are born into this world DOA. We are biologically alive, but we're spiritually dead on arrival. We have no inclination whatsoever in our souls towards the things of God. No interest, no passion, no love, no inclination. We're dead. And because we're spiritually dead, and because we're children of darkness, We are slaves to the sinful impulses and lusts that drive our behavior. We are not just participants in sin. That is far too weak a description. But what the Bible teaches us again and again is that we are slaves to sin. Sin is not only in our nature, beloved, but it is our master. The great Augustine used the uh, metaphor of Satan riding a horse on occasion, saying that if you are the horse, uh, before you're converted, you have one rider, and it's Satan. He has the bit in your teeth, He's in control of the reins, and when he turns your head in this direction, that's the direction you go. When he says, whoa, you stop, and when he says, giddy up, you go, because he is your master, and you are his slave. And then the gospel went on to say, but when you're converted by the power of the Holy Ghost, it's not like Satan is dismissed back to the stables. And the only one who's riding you now is Jesus. No. Satan gives up the reins reluctantly. He'll do everything he can to get that bit back in your mouth and to recover you towards his uh, covey of slaves, as it were. He hates to lose a slave. And so our whole Christian life, we have to fight against the enticements and the seductions of Satan, who is furious that we have left his design. But something radically new has happened. And what has happened is that we have gone through a spiritual resurrection. Just in the time earlier this evening, we were talking to new members. One of them talked to me about his conversion and said to me, it's like, It's like having a whole new life. Really. No kidding. 
What does the Bible say? He who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, and all things have become new. And that's because the Spirit of God has raised our souls from the dead. Now, Paul elaborates this idea in his letter to the Ephesians, particularly in chapter 2, where you remember he says, but you hath he quickened. Some translations read, and you who he hath made alive while you were dead in sins and trespasses. When where you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, and according to the course of this world, obeying the lusts of the flesh. You see, that's Paul's description of spiritual death and slavery. But now he's addressing the Ephesians, and he says, you've been quickened, or you've been made alive. What's he referring to? He's referring to regeneration. And I want to talk just for a few minutes of regeneration because the idea of regeneration, I believe, lies beneath everything that Paul is teaching here in this sixth chapter. You who are justified are people who have been changed, and you have been changed supernaturally. Now, every now and then I find something that Martin Luther says that I disagree with, and here's one of them. Luther, in extolling the wonders of spiritual rebirth or regeneration, says regeneration is the greatest miracle of all. Well, I quibble with the Reformer there. I don't think regeneration is a miracle because regeneration is invisible. And a tight definition of miracle in the biblical sense is something that happens in the external perceivable world that only God can bring to pass, like bringing life out of death, something out of nothing. But regeneration is hidden. It takes place in the soul of a human being, so you can't see it. Now, let me just say this. It's every bit as supernatural as any outward miracle. And that's what Luther was getting at, that regeneration is not something that you can do for yourself. How much influence did you have in your own birth, in your own conception? None, when we're talking biologically. Well, when it comes to spiritual rebirth, if anything, you have an even less influence. You may have been so active, kicking and screaming in your mother's womb that you uh, hurried up the day of your birth, but you can't even do that in terms of your spiritual rebirth. Only God has the power to raise a human soul from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so we define regeneration as that supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit, which happens supernaturally and immediately in the soul of a human being. Well, what do we mean by immediately? 
And we mean by that without the use of any means, no intermediary devices. But the Spirit works directly, and He works monergistically, which is to say He's the only one who is operating in this endeavor. Regeneration, rebirth is not a joint venture between you and God. God and God alone can raise a spiritually dead soul to spiritual life. The flesh, which is all you are before you're converted, can do nothing. Remember when Jesus had the conversation at night with Nicodemus? Nicodemus came with his flattering comments, good teacher, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, or you would not be able to do the works that you do. It was sound thinking so far. And then Jesus stops him short and says to this teacher of Israel, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born of the water and the Spirit, he can't even enter in the kingdom of God. He can't see it. He can't enter it. Because then Jesus said, because that which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And the flesh cannot produce the Spirit. As Jesus later said, the flesh profits nothing. And there's one of my favorite quotations from Luther, where Luther had to remind Erasmus in their debate that that nothing is not a little something. When you're born, you are flesh, 100%. And the flesh is at enmity with God. The flesh is spiritually dead. The flesh is enslaved. And unless God the Holy Spirit changes your flesh and gives you spirit, you'll stay flesh forever. And course, that baffled Nicodemus. How can these things be? Does a man crawl a second time into his mother's womb that he can be born? And Jesus, are you a teacher of Israel? Are you a theologian? You don't understand these things? This should be theology 101. You should have known this ages ago of your helpless condition in the flesh apart from the supernatural intervention of God. Well, why am I talking like this? Well, I'm talking like this for this reason. That you cannot cause yourself to be born again. Billy Graham once wrote a book called How to Be Born Again. A how-to manual. What a waste of words. Because there's nothing you can do to be born again. Because God does it all. Not 99%, but 100%. Only God can raise somebody from the dead. That's physically and spiritually. And so, what Paul is saying here in Romans 6 is, you have been raised from the dead. You have a new genesis. Genao means to be, to become, or to be happened, and regeneration means a a new or second or repetition of the original genesis. You had a genesis when you were born. Now you have a new genesis 
a regeneration, a rebirth, only this time it's a spiritual birth wrought by the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit. Now, you just stop and think about it for a minute. Think of the blessings that you've received in your lifetime. Think of how many times you've grumbled about what you didn't get. Think of how many times you've been lacking in contentment, dissatisfied with the hand that God has dealt you. And then look around the world and see the vast multitudes who have no idea what it means to be born of the Spirit. If you're living in a hovel, if you're living through constant chronic pain and illness, but have, been, but have received the supernatural work of genera- regeneration in your soul, you have nothing, no reason to do anything but praise God for the rest of eternity because you have received the pearl of great price. You've been raised from the dead already. And you're just already going to live into eternity because the sting of death has been removed from you because what God has regenerated, death cannot destroy. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. We have newness of life. Our lives have been changed. That's why I spent so much time last time talking about this pernicious doctrine and the lordship salvation controversy that talks about people can have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. And this defective doctrine of regeneration where people believe that you can be reborn and unchanged. How can somebody who's dead be made alive and not be different? How can somebody be in slavery and be released from those bondage and not be changed? The biggest change you'll ever go through in this world takes place when you're reborn. You've changed from spiritual death to spiritual life, from bondage to freedom. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so Paul is saying, consider what has happened to you. You died with Christ. You've been raised in the power of His resurrection. And in a sense, there's a strange combination here of the imperative and the indicative. Since this is the way you are, then behave that way. Live like people who have a new life, because if you are regenerate, you have a new life. And if you are justified, you're a new creation. And so now, after God has rescued us from death, He expects us to live for Him for the rest of our days. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now, what's Paul mean by the old man? He's talking about the former human nature. 
the nature that we brought into this world, where the constituent nature of our humanity was dead in sin. And that person, that old person with a singular disposition towards sin, whose hearts were hearts of stone, that's the one who was crucified with Christ. Christ has not just died for your sins, but He's died for your sinfulness. Let me say it again. He didn't just die for your sin legally, bearing your guilt, but He died to kill your original sin, your moral inability, your dead, corrupt, fallen nature was crucified with Christ on the cross. My old man received the curse of God on Calvary. You see how difficult this text is? It boggles my mind to think about what Paul is articulating here. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Whoops, there it goes. Uh, you know, I put question marks in my Bible. I don't know if you do that, but I have lots of them. And there's one, body of sin. Oh, Paul, what do you mean here? What's this body of sin that you're describing? Are you, is he describing our physical body, the word there, soma? He's not using the term that he usually uses to describe our corrupt nature, our flesh, as I've already indicated, our sarks, but he's talking about our physical body here, the body of sin. Well, let me tell you what Paul doesn't mean. Paul does not equate sin with physicality. We have a tendency never to have gotten rid of our Greek roots And we tend to think of sins simply in terms of physical appetites and physical acts of disobedience, gluttony, sex, drunkenness, stuff like that, that immediately involves our body. And we think, well, sin is just contained in our physical extremities. No, no, no. We have a mind of flesh. Sin is something that is in our thoughts. Sin is something that's deeply rooted in our souls. You can't bifurcate the the, uh, Bible or the human person and say the physical part is sinful and the spiritual part is good the way Plato did. No, no, no. Can't do that. That's not the way Paul's not saying that this body of sin is done away with. He may mean this mass of sin. When we talk about a body of literature, we mean that whole corpus there that may involve several books, several volumes, a heap of things, a mass of them. And maybe that's what Paul is simply saying, that we have to understand that this mass of sin, what Augustine called this mass of perdition that describes our fallen condition, is crucified with Christ and is done away with. Maybe that's it. Later on in chapter 7, he cries out, O Lord, 
who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, he uses a similar expression, body of sin, body of death. One theory, and it's only that, I've read a couple of times, it's not too widely known, but that I'm told that one of the penalties for murder in some sectors of the ancient world was that if you murdered somebody and they found the corpse, they would take that decaying corpse, and as your punishment, they would tie that putrescent corpse onto your body, and you would have to walk around with this corpse hanging on your back while it was decaying and rotting. Can you imagine anything more ghastly than that, than being tied to a dead body? And the idea that some take here is that Paul is speaking of that, that this sin nature that we brought into this world is like a putrid, decaying, corrupted corpse, a body of death that we still have to carry around with us until we go to heaven. Because even though we've been reborn, even though we've been let out of prison, of slavery, we still sin. And we still fall. However, that does not mean that we are unchanged. We are changed. And the old man is dying daily. He dies the death, you see, of inches and inches. But each day we live in the grace of God. The new man that has been raised with Christ is being strengthened and is growing, and the old man is dying more and more. In a very spiritual way, it died already on the cross, but yet at the same time, it's still kicking and screaming, and we have to deal with it through our life's end. But I'm not sure what he means by this body of sin, probably the former, that he's just talking about this mass of sin that we have to deal with, maybe done away with. Well, the purpose is clear, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You know, dear friends, it's one thing to be a sinner. It's another thing to be a slave of sin. We all sin. But if we've been born of the Spirit, we're no longer slaves to that sin. We can no longer say to God, I can't help it. I'm dominated by the power of sin. If you're still in that condition of slavery to sin, then you're not regenerate. That doesn't mean that we don't have besetting sins, sins that cause us to fail over and over and over again. We're called to resist those sins, and the greatest Christians have to fight that all of their spiritual lives. But in the final analysis, we have been set free. And we now have the power of God at our Uh, disposal to have victory over any 
forgiven sin. Now, let me just say something that may surprise you. I believe that it's possible for a Christian after conversion to live a perfect life. I hope you're looking at me quizzically as you are. You're saying, did I just hear him say what I think I heard him say? Did he say that he believes that a Christian can live a Christian life, a perfect life after conversion? I said it. But let me qualify it before you go for the matches and burn me at the stake. I think it's possible that you can live the rest of your days without sin. But I think the odds against it are astronomical. (laughs) It's virtually certain that you will continue to struggle with sin. Why? Because there's so much weakness left in us and so many opportunities for sin that bombard us against us. But if you consider each particular sin that you're ever confronted with in your life, you have to know that at the moment of that temptation, the God who has raised you from spiritual death has given you the grace then and there to resist that sin. So no longer do we sin under compulsion as slaves. We have been set free but our liberty is extremely weak. It's a new thing for us. And this power of the resurrection is not something we're accustomed to. Our comfort zone is still back in the graveyard of spiritual death. But we really have been set free by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, that we achieve perfection is something I will teach strenuously against when we get to chapter 7, but let's wait for those problems. They're hard enough to deal with the ones that we have. He who has died has been freed from sin. You know, you go to the cemetery, the folks are there. They're not struggling with temptation. The battle is over. And for the saints, they're in heaven, and they are not exposed to sin at all. Once you die, die, the battle's over. And so, he says, you've died. Consider yourself dead. He who has died has been freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Jesus died once, once, and He wouldn't even have died that once unless He was willing to receive in His own person the imputation of our sin, because sin had absolutely no claim over Him, because he, or death had no claim over Him because He was sinless. But He died. And the Father never says to Jesus, run that by me again. Let's do it every Sunday in the Mass. No. One time. Once for all. His work is finished on the cross. For death no longer has dominion 
over him. How long did death have dominion over him? Not very long. One of my favorite texts in the New Testament is when it talks about that death couldn't hold him. Death crushes him on the cross, and he's only vulnerable to that death because of the imputation of sin. But after he pays the price for our sin, death is now powerless. The dominion of death is gone. And death could have tried with all of death's power to hold Christ in the, in the tomb, but it would have been an exercise in futility. Indeed, it was an exercise in futility. This is what, get, what, uh, what, what really amazes me in how we think as people. You talk about the resurrection of Christ and people say, it's impossible because we determine possibilities on the basis of probabilities upon what we observe and experiment with in this world. We've never seen anybody come out of the grave. And with the multitudes of examples of people dying and staying dead, we come to the conclusion that we have explored the full measure of the realm of possibility. You say somebody comes back from the grave, that's impossible. That's not the way the Bible looks at it. The Bible says it's absolutely impossible for death to hold him. It could not maintain dominion over Christ. It's a small thing, a minor thing, an easy thing for God to raise His Son from the dead. His resurrection from the dead is no greater in power and scope than your conception as a human soul was in the womb of your mother. That's by the power of God and only by the power of God. And that that same power could burst into that tomb. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Easter's not until Sunday. But it's here in this text, isn't it? Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. Just one time, it was just a second. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And the life that he lives and the life that he gives is not over in a moment. It's not like a vapor that passes away. But the Christ who is alive lives forever. Death is no longer a threat to him. He died once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you too. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that what Paul is saying here is that he is making application of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. He says, just as our Savior has defeated death and sin, not just for himself but for us, he says, reckon, reckon. What does that mean? 
Remember the old Western movies? He said, do you think it's going to rain today, partner? He says, I reckon. It means I think so. It has to do with thinking or judging or esteeming. What, Jesus, or what Paul is saying is consider yourself. Deem yourself. Think of yourself of being dead to sin. Think of yourself. Reckon to yourself the life that is yours in the power of the gospel and in the power of the Spirit of God because now you are made alive by Christ and for Christ and under Christ and so your life belongs to Him. Consider the old man dead. Ancient history. That's over. Oh, it may be something like D-Day. The war's over, but nobody knew it. There was still the battle of the bulge to come. But you have been made alive in Christ Jesus. And you need to think of yourself in those terms. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, help us to reckon ourselves as free from death, free from sin, that we might become slaves to Christ, bondage, in bondage to Him and to His spirits, His Spirit, that we may consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Him. Amen.